Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. I'm Julie, and here we have episode 374 of Forgotten Classics, where we are really adventuring along now in the mystery of The House of a Thousand Candles by Meredith Mickelson. First, though, I'm going to tell you not about a podcast highlight, but about a Forgotten Classics author. This is somebody whose books I hope to read to you someday. However, at the slow pace I'm going with everything these days, I want to let you know so you can go look for him yourself. His name is Raphael Sabatini, R-A-F-A-E-L Sabatini. He was Italian, but also English, and he spoke seven languages. Oh, wait. Let's make it eight because he specifically learned English so he could write stories in it because he said that was the best language for storytelling. So I appreciate that a lot because I can't read the other languages and I hate to think of his stories being told in a language I can't read. Although I guess there are always such things as translations, but moving on. What he wrote were swashbucklers, pirates, lords, rescuing damsels, taking things for the queen, all sorts of reasons. But generally, they were swashbuckling while they did it. They're intelligent. They have great plots, which are often quite labyrinthine in their concoction. And the characters will flip on you in a way you don't expect. They'll often be against type in a way you don't expect. And of course, I know I mentioned this, they're swashbucklers, so they're super entertaining. I had come across one of his most famous, Captain Blood, and liked it pretty well, but there's an awful lot of seafaring at the end of the book, and I just don't care about seafaring that much, so it required a certain amount of skimming. Then I came across the movie, The Seahawk, starring Errol Flynn. I'm not a huge Errol Flynn fan, but this is one of my favorite of his movies, And I saw, oh, it's based on a Raphael Sabatini book, which I'll tell you right now, the only thing those things have in common, the movie and the book, is the title. And possibly the character's name, I don't remember. But the book is amazing. Sabatini almost always wrote his stories with a historical basis. And most of the characters were actual characters doing the actual things, although I think a lot of the time he jazzed them up so they'd be more entertaining. The main character often is not. In this case, the main character is a real person who got caught up in a family feud, both with the neighbors next door and with his own brother, though that's kind of unbeknownst to him. And it results in galley slavery, an exploration of Islam in that time period, when they were running Spain, and it is super exotic and super fun. I loved it so much. So, very gradually, every so often, I have picked up one of these books whenever I feel the need to escape from the world. And I think we all feel that sometimes, maybe more now than ever. So, a couple of the other books that I've read by him that I really enjoyed lately, especially, are called St. Martin's Summer. It is about a swordsman named Garnash, who is wily. 
He's accomplished. He's sent by the Queen of France to rescue an heiress who is being held prisoner by a mother and a son based on their deliberate misreading of a will so they can try to take over her wealthy estate. And part of the fun of this book is this where it goes against character is Garnache is plagued with this horrible temper. He's in his early 40s, maybe, and not as high up as he should be because he keeps losing his darn temper. So he also hates women. He says, let me tell you that this is the first time in my life that I have been concerned in anything that had to do with women. And of course, in this book, the hilarious thing is he's mostly dealing with women. The Queen of France, Valerie de la Varnay, who is the heiress he's supposed to rescue, and the wicked Marquise de Condillac. So that is a lot of fun. I really liked it. Another famous one of Sabatini's, the other famous one besides Captain Blood, is Scaramouche. I talked about this one on SFF Audio a long time ago, and (laughs) they enjoyed it a lot there too. So if that gives you any recommendation, the swashbuckling there is not on the sea. It is on land, and it's right before the French Revolution. There's a young lawyer who's never believed strongly in any particular point of view, especially philosophically. And his best friend goes to talk to a local lord about slaying a poacher. It all goes south. This guy has to go on the lam, André Louis. And eventually, he joins an acting company so he can hide in it. But also, he feels like he has to speak up for his friend's point of view, even if he doesn't really believe in it. And so one of the things that this winds up looking at is him as he gradually starts changing because of his experiences, because of the plays and speeches he's writing. It kind of looks at that idea of if you pretend to be something long enough, you kind of turn into it. Anyway, super fun, a lot of swashbuckling, but it's not tedious. And there are some others. I will point you to a post that I'm going to have on Happy Catholic that has some more details about these stories and some others. The one I'm reading right now is called The Hounds of God, and it is about a very independent young lady, and it explains why she's that way. So she's not just super modern. There's a reason for her independence, which is unusual in Elizabeth's time. Her next door neighbor, who's in love with her, but cannot figure out how to read her. We can read her, but he can't. And a Spanish nobleman who washed up after the collapse of the Spanish Armada. Do we trust him? I don't know. I don't want to be too Elizabethan. I don't want to say he's given a few clues that maybe we can't trust him. But that's how I feel. I haven't read the whole book, so I don't know. But they're darn good fun, as you probably have the idea by now. So you can find them at Project Gutenberg, at least the ones that are in public domain. There are a lot of them there, I think 22 of them. He wrote 31 books, plays, and short stories also. So you're going to find a lot of things. And a lot of the time you can find these pretty cheap for the Kindle at Amazon. Or you could do my favorite thing. You could try your local library. These were so popular in the day, and most libraries have a good supply of them. Enjoy. All right, back to our exciting book, which is not a swashbuckler. Though, if it could be, I feel like it would. It's got some of that attitude to it. Let's get back to The House of a Thousand Candles. 
Oh my gosh, Pickering loses no time. He immediately slaps them with a warrant. And I love Larry's response, which is, all right, let's get ready for the war. And they've gathered all the guns. They're looking around. They hear a ghost upstairs. He's not worried. He goes running on up there. It makes a big difference when you have a whole crowd of people, I think, than when you're just by yourself with somebody you don't trust, like Bates. So I love this camaraderie of this group. And I love it even more when they're exploring in the cellar and Larry's like, oh, no, wait, you haven't been thinking about this right. I am measuring. I am wrapping on walls. Oop! look what I found. So when the sheriff shows up and he stays down there and finishes excavating and finds the proof that Pickering owed the grandfather a lot of money, all of a sudden we're starting to have some proof. Unfortunately, poor Larry outed himself. He's going to have to go on the lamb, but I cannot wait to see what's in that envelope and if there was anything else left in that hole. Also, Marianne came back and it was kind of funny to me that this was like a reversal of a typical romantic novel, except that instead of the woman being all suspicious and taking everything the guy says wrong because she cares so much and she just can't believe that he could love her. The guy is doing it. He is making the worst possible interpretation of every action of hers, even though in a lot of the case, he already knew the proper motivation. He's just pissed off, you know? He just wants her to be his. We all know it. Come on. And she's being so reasonable and so logical. Well, that's infuriating. Come on. We want a little passion here. So I hope that pretty soon he and Marion come to some understanding because this will get tedious if it goes on too long. I also can't wait to find out what was in that hole. So let's dive in. Chapter 24 a prowler of the night. Down we plunged into the cellar, through the trap and to the door of bewilderment. Don't expect too much, admonished Larry. I can't promise you a single Spanish coin. Perish the ambition. We've blocked Pickering's game, and nothing else matters, I said. We crawled through the hole in the wall and lighted candles. The room was about seven feet square. At the farther end was an oblong wooden door, close to the ceiling, and Larry tugged at the fastening, until it came down, bringing with it a mass of snow and leaves. "'Gentlemen,' he said, "'we are at the edge of the ravine. Do you see the blue sky? And yonder, if you will twist your necks a bit, is the boathouse.' "'Well, let the scenic effects go, and show us where you found those papers,' I urged. "'Speaking of mysteries, that is where I throw up my hands, lads. It's quickly told. Here is a table, and here is a tin despatch box, which lies just where I found it. It was closed, and the key was in the lock.' I took out that packet, it wasn't even sealed, saw the character of the contents, and couldn't resist the temptation to try the effect of an announcement of its discovery on your friend Pickering. Now that is nearly all. I found this piece of paper under the tape with which the envelope was tied, and I don't hesitate to say that when I read it I laughed until I thought I should shake down the cellar. Read it, John Glenarm. He handed me a sheet of legal cap paper, on which was written these words, He laughs best who laughs last. "'What do you think is so funny in this?' I demanded. "'Who wrote it, do you think?' asked Stoddard. "'Who wrote it, do you ask? "'Why, your grandfather wrote it. "'John Marshall Glenarm, the cleverest, grandest old man that ever lived, wrote it,' declaimed Larry. 
his voice booming loudly in the room it's all a great big game fix up to try you in pickering but principally you you blockhead oh it's grand perfectly deliciously grand and to think it should be my good luck to share in it humph i'm glad you're amused but it doesn't strike me as being so awfully funny suppose those papers had fallen into pickering's hands then where would the joke have been i should like to know on you my lad to be sure the old gentleman wanted you to study architecture he wanted you to study his house he even left a little pointer in an old book ah it's too good to be true that's all clear enough observed stoddard knocking upon the dispatch box with his knuckles but why do you suppose he dug this hole here with its outlet on the ravine oh it was the way of him explained larry he liked the idea of queer corners and underground passages this is a bully hiding place for a man or treasure and that outlet into the ravine makes it possible to get out of the house with nobody the wiser it's in keeping with the rest of his scheme be gay comrades to-morrow we'll likely find us with plenty of business on our hands at present we hold the fort and let us have a care lest we lose it we closed the ravine door restored the brick as best we could and returned to the library we made a list of the pickering notes and spent an hour discussing this new feature of the situation that's a large amount of money to lend one man said stoddard true and from that we may argue that mr glenarm didn't give pickering all he had there's more somewhere if only i didn't have to run and larry's face fell as he remembered his own plight i'm a selfish pig old man i've been thinking only of my own affairs but i never relied on you as much as now those fellows will sound the alarm against donovan without a doubt on general principles and to land a blow on you remarked stoddard thoughtfully but you can get away larry we'll help you off to-night i don't intend to stand between you and liberty this extradition business is no joke and if they ever get you back in ireland it will be no fun getting you off you'd better run for it before pickering and his sheriffs spring their trap yes that's the wise course glenarm and i can hold the fort here his is a moral issue really and i'm in for a siege of a thousand years said the clergyman earnestly if it's necessary to beat pickering i may go to jail in the end too i suppose i want you both to leave it's unfair to mix you up in this ugly business of mine your stake's bigger than mine larry and yours too stoddard why your whole future your professional standing and prospects would be ruined if we got into a fight here with the authorities thank you for mentioning my prospects i've never had them referred to before laughed stoddard no your grandfather was a friend of the church and i can't desert his memory i'm a believer in a vigorous church militant and i've enlisted for the whole war but donovan ought to go if he will allow me to advise him larry filled his pipe at the fireplace lads he said his hands behind him rocking gently as was his way let us talk of art and letters i'm going to stay it hasn't often happened in my life that the whole setting of the stage has pleased me as much as this lost treasure secret passages a gentleman rogue storming the citadel a private chaplain on the premises a young squire followed by a limelight sheriff schoolgirls and a sisterhood distributed through the landscape and me with scotland yard looming duskily in the distance glenarm i'm going to stay there was no shaking him and the spirits of all of us rose after this new pledge of loyalty stoddard stayed for dinner and afterward we began again our eternal quest for the treasure our hopes high from larry's lucky strike of the afternoon and with a new eagerness born of the knowledge that the morrow would certainly bring us face to face with the real crisis we ranged the house from tower to cellar 
we overhauled the tunnel for it seemed to me the hundredth time it was my watch and at midnight after stoddard and larry had reconnoitred the grounds and bates and i had made sure of all the interior fastenings i sent them off to bed and made myself comfortable with a pipe in the library i was glad of the respite glad to be alone to consider my talk with marian devereux at st agatha's and her return with pickering why could she not always have been olivia roaming the woodland or the girl in grey or that woman so sweet in her dignity who came down the stairs at the armstrongs her own attitude toward me was so full of contradictions she had appeared to me in so many moods and guises that my spirit ranged the whole gamut of feeling as i thought of her but it was the recollection of pickering's infamous conduct that colored all my doubts of her pickering had always been in my way and here but for the chance by which larry had found the notes i should have had no weapon to use against him the wind rose and drove shrilly around the house a bit of scaffolding on the outer walls rattled loose somewhere and crashed down on the terrace i grew restless my mind intent upon the many chances of the morrow and running forward to the future even if i won in my strife with pickering i had yet my way to make in the world his notes were probably worthless i did not doubt that i might use them to procure his removal as executor but i did not look forward with any pleasure to a legal fight over a property that had brought me only trouble something impelled me to go below and taking a lantern i tramped somberly through the cellar glanced at the heating apparatus and remembering that the chapel entrance to the tunnel was unguarded followed the corridor to the trap and opened it the cold air blew up sharply and i thrust my head down to listen a sound at once arrested me i thought at first it must be the suction of the air but glenarm house was no place for conjectures and i put the lantern aside and jumped down into the tunnel a gleam of light showed for an instant then the darkness and silence were complete i ran rapidly over the smooth floor which i had traversed so often that i knew its every line my only weapon was one of stoddard's clubs near the door of bewilderment i paused and listened the tunnel was perfectly quiet i took a step forward and stumbled over a brick fumbled on the wall for the opening which we had closed carefully that afternoon and at the instant i found it a lantern flashed blindingly in my face and i drew back crouching involuntarily and clenching the club ready to strike good evening mr glenarm marian devereux's voice broke the silence and marian devereux's face with the full light of the lantern upon it was bent gravely upon me her voice as i heard it there her face as i saw it there are the things that i shall remember last when my hour comes to go hence from this world the slim fingers as they clasped the wire screen of the lantern held my gaze for a second the red tam-o-shanter that i had associated with her youth and beauty was tilted rakishly on one side of her pretty head to find her here seeking like a thief in the night for some means of helping arthur pickering was the bitterest drop in the cup i felt as though i had been struck with a bludgeon i beg your pardon she said and laughed there doesn't seem to be anything to say does there well we do certainly meet under the most unusual not to say unconventional circumstances squire glenarm please go away or turn your back i want to get out of this donjon keep she took my hand coolly enough and stepped down into the passage then i broke upon her stormily you don't seem to understand the gravity of what you are doing don't you know that you are risking your life in crawling through this house at midnight that even to serve arthur pickering a life is a pretty big thing to throw away 
"'Your infatuation for that blackguard seems to carry you far, Miss Devereux.' She swung the lantern at arm's length back and forth, so that its rays at every forward motion struck my face like a blow. "'It isn't exactly pleasant in this cavern. Unless you wish to turn me over to the Lord High Executioner, I will bid you good-night.' "'But the infamy of this, of coming in here to spy upon me, to help my enemy, the man who is seeking plunder, doesn't seem to trouble you?' "'No, not a particle.' she replied quietly, and then with an impudent fling. "'Oh, no!' She held up the lantern to look at the wick. "'I'm really disappointed to find that you were a little ahead of me, Squire Glenarm. I didn't give you credit for so much perseverance. But if you have the notes—' "'The notes? He told you there were notes, did he? The coward sent you here to find them, after his other tools failed him?' She laughed, that low laugh of hers, that was like the bubble of a spring. "'Of course no one would dare deny—' "'What the great Squire Glenarm says,' she said witheringly. "'You can't know what your perfidy means to me,' I said. "'That night at the Armstrongs, I thrilled at the sight of you. "'As you came down the stairway, I thought of you as my good angel, "'and I belong to you all my life, "'the better future that I wish to make for your sake.' "'Please don't.' "'And I felt that my words had touched her, "'that there were regret and repentance in her tone, "'and in the gesture with which she turned from me.' She hurried down the passage, swinging the lantern at her side, and I followed, so mystified, so angered by her composure, that I scarcely knew what I did. She even turned, with pretty courtesy, to hold the light for me at the crypt steps, a service that I accepted perforce, and with joyless acquiescence, in the irony of it. I knew that I did not believe in her. Her conduct as to Pickering was utterly indefensible. I could not forget that but the light of her eyes, her tranquil brow, the sensitive lips, whose mockery stung and pleased in a breath. By such testimony my doubts were alternately reinforced and disarmed. Swept by these changing moods, I followed her out into the crypt. "'You seem to know a good deal about this place, and I suppose I can't object to your familiarizing yourself with your own property. And the notes. I'll give myself the pleasure of handing them to you to-morrow. You can cancel them and give them to Mr. Pickering.' a pretty pledge between you. I thrust my hands into my pockets, to give an impression of ease I did not feel. Yes, she remarked in a practical tone, three hundred and twenty thousand dollars is no mean sum of money. Mr. Pickering will undoubtedly be delighted to have his debts cancelled. In exchange for a life of devotion, I sneered. So you knew the sum, the exact amount of these notes? He hasn't served you well. He should have told you that we found them to-day.' "'You are not nice, are you, Squire Glenarm, when you are cross?' She was like Olivia now. I felt the utter futility of attempting to reason with a woman who could become a child at will. She walked up the steps and out into the church vestibule. Then, before the outer door, she spoke with decision. "'We part here, if you please. And I have not the slightest intention of trying to explain my errand into that passage. You have jumped to your own conclusion, which will have to serve you. I advise you—' not to think very much about it, to the exclusion of more important business, Squire Glenarm. She lifted the lantern to turn out its light, and it made a glory of her face, but she paused and held it toward me. Pardon me, you will need this to light you home. But you must not cross the park alone. Good night. Please be sure to close the door to the passage when you go down. You are a dreadfully heedless person, Squire Glenarm. She flung open the outer chapel door, and ran along the path toward St. Agatha's. I watched her in the starlight, until a bend in the path hid her swift-moving figure. 
Down through the passage I hastened, her lantern lighting my way. At the door of bewilderment I closed the opening, setting up the line of the wall as we had left it in the afternoon, and then I went back to the library, freshened the fire, and brooded before it until Bates came to relieve me at dawn. CHAPTER Twenty Five: THE SIEGED It was nine o'clock. A thermometer on the terrace showed the mercury clinging stubbornly to a point above zero, but the still air was keen and stimulating, and the sun argued for good cheer in a cloudless sky. We had swallowed some breakfast, though I believe no one had manifested an appetite, and we were cheering ourselves with the idlest talk possible. Stoddard, who had been to the chapel for his usual seven o'clock service, was deep in the pocket Greek testament he always carried. Bates ran in to report a summons at the outer wall, and Larry and I went together to answer it, sending Bates to keep watch toward the lake. Our friend, the sheriff, with a deputy, was outside in a buggy. He stood up and talked to us over the wall. "'You gents understand that I'm only doing my duty. It's an unpleasant business, but the court orders me to eject all trespassers on the premises, and I've got to do it.' The law is being used by an infamous scoundrel to protect himself. I don't intend to give in. We can hold out here for three months, if necessary, and I advise you to keep away and not be made a tool for a man like Pickering. The sheriff listened respectfully, resting his arms on top of the wall. You ought to understand, Mr. Glenarm, that I ain't the court, I'm the sheriff, and it's not for me to pass on these questions. I've got my orders, and I've got to enforce them, and I hope you'll not make it necessary for me to use violence. The judge said to me, we deplore violence in such cases. Those were his honor's very words. You may give his honor my compliments, and tell him that we are sorry not to see things his way, but there are points involved in this business that he doesn't know anything about, and we, unfortunately, have no time to lay them before him. The sheriff's seeming satisfaction with his position on the wall, and his disposition to parley, had begun to arouse my suspicions, and Larry several times exclaimed impatiently at the absurdity of discussing my affairs with a person whom he insisted on calling a constable, to the sheriff's evident annoyance. The officer now turned upon him. "'You, sir, we've got our eye on you, and you'd better come along peaceable. Laurence Donovan, the description fits you to a T.' "'You could buy a nice farm with that reward, couldn't you?' began Larry. But at that moment Bates ran toward us, calling loudly. "'They're coming across the lake, sir,' he reported, and instantly the sheriff's head disappeared, and as we ran toward the house— we heard his horse pounding down the road toward St. Agatha's. "'The law be damned! They don't intend to come in here by the front door as a matter of law,' said Larry. "'Pickering's merely using the sheriff to give respectability to his maneuvers, for those notes, and the rest of it.' It was no time for a discussion of motives. We ran across the meadow past the water-tower and through the wood down to the boathouse. Far out on the lake we saw half a dozen men approaching the Glenarm grounds. They advanced steadily over the light snow that lay upon the ice one man slightly in advance, and evidently the leader. "'It's Morgan,' exclaimed Bates, "'and there's Ferguson.' Larry chuckled and slapped his thigh. "'Observe that stucky little devil just behind the leader. He's my friend from Scotland Yard. Lads, this is really an international affair.' "'Bates, go back to the house and call at any sign of attack,' I ordered. "'The sheriff's loose somewhere.' "'And Pickering is directing his forces from afar,' remarked Stoddard. "'I count ten men in Morgan's line,' said Larry. "'And the sheriff and his deputy make two more. "'That's twelve, not counting Pickering, "'that we know of on the other side.' "'Warn them away before they get much nearer,' suggested Stoddard. "'We don't want to hurt people if we can help it.' "'And at this I went to the end of the pier. "'Morgan and his men were now quite near, "'and there was no mistaking their intentions. 
most of them carried guns the others revolvers and long ice hooks morgan i called holding up my hands for a truce we wish you no harm but if you enter these grounds you do so at your peril we're all sworn deputy sheriffs called the caretaker smoothly we've got the law behind us that must be why you're coming in the back way i replied the thick-set man whom larry had identified as the english detective now came closer and addressed me in a high key you're harboring a bad man mr glenarm you'd better give him up the american law supports me and you'll get yourself in trouble if you protect that man you may not understand it sir but he's a very dangerous character thanks davidson called larry you'd better keep out of this you know i'm a bad man with the shillelagh that you are you blackguard yelled the officer so spitefully that we all laughed i drew back to the boathouse they're not going to kill anybody if they can help it remarked stoddard any more than we are even deputy sheriffs are not turned loose to do murder and the wabana county court wouldn't if it hadn't been imposed on by pickering lend itself to a game like this now we're in for it yelled larry and the twelve men in close order came running across the ice toward the shore open order and fall back slowly toward the house i commanded and we deployed from the boathouse while the attacking party still clung together a strategic error as larry assured us stay together lads don't separate you'll get lost if you do he yelled stoddard bade him keep still and we soon had our hands full with a preliminary skirmish morgan's line advanced warily davidson the detective seemed disgusted at morgan's tactics openly abused the caretaker and ran ahead of his column revolver in hand bearing down upon larry who held our centre the englishman's haste was his undoing the light fall of snow a few days before had gathered in the little hollows of the wood deceptively the detective plunged into one of these and fell sprawling on all fours a calamity that caused his comrades to pause uneasily larry was upon his enemy in a flash wrenched his pistol away and pulled the man to his feet ah davidson there's many a slip move if you dare and i'll plug you with your own gun and he stood behind the man using him as a shield while morgan and the rest of the army hung near the boathouse uncertainly it's the strategic intellect we've captured general observed larry to me you see the american invaders were depending on british brains morgan now acted on the hint we furnished him and sent his men out as skirmishers the loss of the detective had undoubtedly staggered the caretaker and we were slowly retreating toward the house larry with one hand on the collar of his prisoner and the other grasping the revolver with which he poked the man frequently in the ribs we slowly continued our retreat fearing a rush which would have disposed of us easily enough if morgan's company had shown more of a fighting spirit stoddard's presence rather amazed them i think and i saw that the invaders kept away from his end of the line we were far apart stumbling over the snow-covered earth and calling to one another now and then that we might not become too widely separated davidson did not relish his capture by the man he had followed across the ocean and he attempted once to roar a command to morgan try it again i heard larry admonish him try that once more and the sod god bless it will never feel the delicate imprint of your web feet again he turned the man about and rushed him toward the house the revolver still serving as a prod his speed gave heart to the wary invaders immediately behind him and two fellows urged and led by morgan charged our line at a smart pace bolt for the front door i called to larry and stoddard and i closed in after him to guard his retreat they're not shooting called stoddard you may be sure they've had their orders to capture the house 
with as little row as possible. We were now nearing the edge of the wood, with the open meadow and water tower at our backs, while Larry was making good time toward the house. "'Let's meet them here!' shouted Stoddard. Morgan was coming up with a club in his hand, making directly for me, two men at his heels, and the rest veering off toward the wall of St. Agatha's. "'Watch the house!' I yelled to the chaplain, and then, on the edge of the wood, Morgan came at me furiously, swinging his club over his head, and in a moment we were fencing away at a merry rate. We both had revolvers strapped to our waists, but I had no intention of drawing mine, unless in extremity. At my right, Stoddard was busy keeping off Morgan's personal guard, who seemed reluctant to close with the clergyman. I have been, in my day, something of a fencer, and my knowledge of the foils stood me in good stead now. With a tremendous thwack, I knocked Morgan's club flying over the snow, and as we grappled, Bates yelled from the house. I quickly found that Morgan's wounded arm was still tender. He flinched at the first grapple, and his anger got the better of his judgment. We kicked up the snow at a great rate as we fainted and dragged each other about. He caught hold of my belt with one hand, and with a great wrench nearly dragged me from my feet, but I pinioned his arms and bent him backward, then, by a trick Larry had taught me, flung him upon his side. It is not, I confess, a pretty business, matching your brute strength against that of a fellow man, and as I cast myself upon him, and felt his hard-blown breath on my face, I hated myself more than I hated him for engaging in so ignoble a contest. Bates continued to call from the house. "'Come at any cost,' shouted Stoddard, putting himself between me and the men who were flying to Morgan's aid. I sprang away from my adversary, snatching his revolver, and ran toward the house. Stoddard close behind, but keeping himself well between me and the men who were now after us in full cry. "'Shoot, you fools! Shoot!' howled Morgan, and as we reached the open meadow and ran for the house, a shotgun roared back of us, and buckshot snapped and rattled on the stone of the water-tower. "'There's the sheriff!' called Stoddard behind me. The officer of the law and his deputy ran into the park from the gate of St. Agatha's, while the rest of Morgan's party were skirting the wall to join them. "'Stop, or I'll shoot!' yelled Morgan, and I felt Stoddard pause in his gigantic stride to throw himself between me and the pursuers. "'Sprint for it, hot!' he called very coolly, as though he were coaching me in a contest of the most amiable sort imaginable. "'Get away from those guns!' I panted, angered by the very generosity of his defence. "'Faint for the front entrance, and then run for the terrace and the library door,' he commanded, as we crossed the little ravine bridge. "'They've got us headed off!' Twice the guns boomed behind us, and twice I saw a shot cut into the snow about me. "'I'm all right,' called Stoddard reassuringly, still at my back. "'They're not a bit anxious to kill me.' I was at the top of my speed now, but the clergyman kept close at my heels. I was blowing hard, but he made equal time with perfect ease. The sheriff was bawling orders to his forces, who awaited us before the front door. Bates and Larry were not visible." but I had every confidence that the Irishman would reappear in the fight at the earliest moment possible. Bates, too, was to be reckoned with, and the final struggle, if it came in the house itself, might not be so unequal, providing we knew the full strength of the enemy. "'Now for the sheriff. Here we go,' cried Stoddard, beside me, and we were close to the fringe of trees that shielded the entrance. Then off we veered suddenly to the left, close upon the terrace, where one of the French windows was thrown open, and Larry and Bates stepped out, urging us on with lusty cries. They caught us by the arms and dragged us over where the balustrade was lowest, and we crowded through the door and slammed it. As Bates snapped the bolts, Morgan's party discharged his combined artillery, 
and the sheriff began a great clatter at the front door. "'Gentlemen, we're in for a state of siege,' observed Larry, filling his pipe. Shot pattered on the walls, and several panes of glass cracked in the French windows. "'All's tight below, sir,' reported Bates. "'I thought it best to leave the tunnel trap open for our own use. Those fellows won't come in that way. It's too much of a blind alley.' "'Where's your prisoner, Larry?' "'Potato cellar. Quite comfortable, thanks.' It was ten o'clock, and the besiegers suddenly withdrew a short distance for parley among themselves. Outside the sun shone brightly, and the sky was never bluer. In this moment of respite, while we made ready for what further the day might bring forth, I climbed up to the finished tower to make sure we knew the enemy's full strength. I could see over the treetops, beyond the chapel tower, the roofs of St. Agatha's. There, at least, was peace. And in that moment, looking over the black wood, with the snow lying upon the ice of the lake, white and gleaming under the sun, I felt unutterably lonely and heartsick, and tired of strife. It seemed a thousand years ago that I had walked and talked with the child Olivia, and ten thousand years more since the girl in grey at the Annandale station had wakened in me a higher aim, and quickened a better impulse than I had ever known. Larry roared my name through the lower floors. I went down with no wish in my heart, but to even matters with Pickering, and be done with my grandfather's legacy for ever. "'The sheriff and Morgan have gone back toward the lake,' reported Larry. "'They've gone to consult their chief,' I said. "'I wish Pickering would lead his own battalions. It would give social prestige to the fight.' "'Bah! These women!' And Larry tore the corner from a cartridge box. Stoddard, with a pile of clubs within reach, lay on his back on the long leather couch, placidly reading his Greek testament. Bates, for the first time since my arrival, seemed really nervous and anxious. He pulled a silver watch from his pocket several times, something I had never seen him do before. He leaned against the table, looking strangely tired and worn, and I saw him start nervously as he felt Larry's eyes upon him. "'I think, sir, I'd better take another look at the outer gates,' he remarked to me quite respectfully. His disturbed air aroused my old antagonism. Was he playing double in the matter? Did he seek now an excuse for conveying some message to the enemy? "'You'll stay where you are,' I said sharply, and I found myself restlessly fingering my revolver. "'Very good, sir,' and the hurt look in his eyes touched me. "'Bates is all right,' Larry declared, with an emphasis that was meant to rebuke me. CHAPTER Twenty Six: THE FIGHT IN THE LIBRARY "'They're coming faster this time,' remarked Stoddard. "'Certainly. Their general has been cursing them right hardly for retreating without the loot. He wants his three hundred thousand dollar autograph collection,' observed Larry. "'Why doesn't he come for it himself, like a man?' I demanded. "'Like a man, do you say?' ejaculated Larry. "'Faith, and you flatter that fat head.' It was nearly eleven o'clock when the attacking party returned after a parley on the ice beyond the boathouse. The four of us were on the terrace ready for them. They came smartly through the wood, the sheriff and Morgan slightly in advance of the others. I expected them to slacken their pace when they came to the open meadow, but they broke into a quick trot at the water-tower and came toward the house as steadily as veteran campaigners. "'Shall we try the gunpowder?' asked Larry. "'We'll let them fire the first volley,' I said. "'They've already tried to murder you and Stoddard. I'm in for letting loose with the elephant guns,' protested the Irishman. "'Stand to your clubs,' admonished Stoddard whose own weapon was comparable to the scriptural weaver's beam. "'Possession is nine-tenths of the fight, and we've got the house.' "'Also a prisoner of war,' said Larry, grinning. 
The English detective had smashed the glass in the barred window of the potato cellar, and we could hear him howling and cursing below. "'Looks like business this time,' exclaimed Larry. "'Spread out now, and the first head that sticks over the balustrade gets a dose of hickory.' When twenty-five yards from the terrace, the advancing party divided, half halting between us and the water-tower, and the remainder swinging around the house toward the front entrance. "'Ah, look at that!' yelled Larry. "'It's a battering-ram they have. Oh, man of peace!' "'Have I your majesty's consent to try the elephant guns now?' Morgan and the sheriff carried between them a stick of timber from which the branches had been cut, and, with a third man to help, they ran it up the steps and against the door with a crash that came booming back through the house. Bates was already bounding up the front stairway, a revolver in his hand, and a look of supreme rage on his face. Leaving Stoddard and Larry to watch the library windows, I was after him, and we clattered over the loose boards in the upper hall, and into a great unfinished chamber immediately over the entrance. Bates had the window up when I reached him, and was well out upon the coping, yelling a warning to the men below. He had his revolver up to shoot, and when I caught his arm, he turned to me with a look of anger and indignation I had never expected to see on his colorless, mask-like face. "'My God, sir! That door was his pride, sir! It came from a famous house in England, and they're wrecking it, sir, as though it were common pine!' He tore himself free of my grasp as the besiegers again launched their battering-ram against the door with a frightful crash, and his revolver cracked smartly thrice, as he bent far out, with one hand clinging to the window-frame. His shots were a signal for a sharp reply from one of the men below, and I felt Bates start and pulled him in, the blood streaming from his face. "'It's all right, sir, all right. Only a cut across my cheek, sir.' And another bullet smashed through the glass, spurting plaster-dust from the wall." A fierce onslaught below caused a tremendous crash to echo through the house, and I heard firing on the opposite side, where the enemy's reserve was waiting. Bates, with a handkerchief to his face, protested that he was unhurt. "'Come below. There's nothing to be gained here.' And I ran down to the hall, where Stoddard stood, leaning upon his club like a Hercules, and coolly watching the door as it leaped and shook under the repeated blows of the besiegers. A gun roared again at the side of the house and I ran to the library, where Larry had pushed furniture against all the long windows save one, which he held open. He stepped out upon the terrace, and emptied a revolver at the men who were now creeping along the edge of the ravine beneath us. One of them stopped, and discharged a rifle at us with deliberate aim. The ball snapped snow from the balustrade, and screamed away harmlessly. "'Bah! Such monkeys!' he muttered. "'I believe I've hit that chap!' One man had fallen and lay howling in the ravine, his hand to his thigh, while his comrades paused, demoralized. "'Serves you right, you blackguard,' Larry muttered. I pulled him in, and we jammed a cabinet against the door. Meanwhile the blows at the front continued with increasing violence. Stoddard still stood where I had left him. Bates was not in sight, but the barking of a revolver above showed that he had returned to the window to take vengeance on his enemies. Stoddard shook his head in deprecation. "'They fired first. We can't do less than get back at them,' I said, between the blows of the battering-ram. A panel of the great oak door now splintered in, but in their fear that we might use the opening as a loophole, they scampered out into the range of Bates's revolver. In return we heard a rain of small shot on the upper windows, and a few seconds later Larry shouted that the flanking party was again at the terrace. This movement evidently heartened the sheriff for under a fire from Bates his men rushed up and the log crashed again into the door, shaking it free of the upper hinges. The lower fastenings were wrenched loose an instant later. 
and the men came tumbling into the hall, the sheriff, Morgan, and four others I had never seen before. Simultaneously, the flanking party reached the terrace and were smashing the small panes of the French windows. We could hear the glass crack and tinkle above the confusion at the door. In the hall he was certainly a lucky man who held to his weapon a moment after the door tumbled in. I blazed at the sheriff with my revolver as he stumbled and half fell at the threshold, so that the ball passed over him, but he gripped me by the legs and had me prone and half dazed by the rap of my head on the floor. I suppose I was two or three minutes at least getting my wits. I was first conscious of Bates grappling the sheriff, who sat upon me, and as they struggled with each other I got the full benefit of their combined, swerving, tossing weight. Morgan and Larry were trying for a chance at each other with revolvers, while Morgan backed the Irishman slowly toward the library. Stoddard had seized one of the unknown deputies with both hands by the collar, and gave his captive a tremendous swing, jerking him high in the air and driving him against another invader with a blow that knocked both fellows spinning into a corner. "'Come on to the library!' shouted Larry, and Bates, who had got me to my feet, dragged me down the hall toward the open library door. Bates presented at this moment an extraordinary appearance, with the blood from the scratch on his face coursing down his cheek and upon his shoulder. His coat and shirt had been torn away, and the blood was smeared over his breast. The fury and indignation in his face was something I hoped not to see again in a human countenance. "'My God! This room! This beautiful room!' I heard him cry as he pushed me before him into the library. "'It was Mr. Glenarm's pride,' he muttered, and sprang upon a burly fellow who had came in through one of the library doors and was climbing over the long table we had set up as a barricade. We were now between two fires. The sheriff's party had fought valiantly to keep us out of the library, and now that we were within, Stoddard's big shoulders held the door half-closed against the combined strength of the men in the hall. This pause was fortunate, for it gave us an opportunity to deal singly with the fellows who were climbing in from the terrace. Bates had laid one of them low with a club, and Larry disposed of another, who had made a murderous effort to stick a knife into him. I was with Stoddard against the door, where the sheriff's men were slowly gaining upon us. "'Let go on the jump when I say three, said Stoddard, and at his word we sprang away from the door and into the room. Larry yelled with joy as the sheriff and his men pitched forward and sprawled upon the floor, and we were at it again in a hand-to-hand conflict to clear the room. "'Hold that position, sir,' yelled Bates. Morgan had directed the attack against me, and I was driven upon the hearth before the great fireplace. The sheriff, Morgan, and Ferguson hemmed me in. It was evident that I was the chief culprit, and they wished to eliminate me from the contest. Across the room, Larry, Stoddard, and Bates were engaged in a lively rough-and-tumble with the rest of the besiegers, and Stoddard, seeing my plight, leaped the overturned table, broke past the trio, and stood at my side, swinging a chair. At that moment, my eyes, sweeping the outer doors, saw the face of Pickering. He had come to see that his orders were obeyed, and I remember yet my satisfaction, as hemmed in by the men he had hired to kill me or drive me out, I felt, rather than saw, the cowardly horror depicted upon his face. Then the trio pressed in upon me. As I threw down my club and drew my revolver, someone across the room fired several shots, whose roar through the room seemed to arrest the fight for an instant, and then, while Stoddard stood at my side swinging his chair defensively, the great chandelier, loosened or broken by the shots, fell with a mighty crash of its crystal pendants. The sheriff, leaping away from Stoddard's club, was struck on the head and borne down by the heavy glass. Smoke from the firing floated in clouds across the room, 
and there was a moment's silence save for the sheriff, who was groaning and cursing under the debris of the chandelier. At the door Pickering's face appeared again anxious and frightened. I think the scene in the room, and the slow progress his men were making against us, had half paralyzed him. We were all getting our second wind for a renewal of the fight, with Morgan in command of the enemy. One or two of his men, who had gone down early in the struggle, were now crawling back for revenge. I think I must have raised my hand and pointed at Pickering, for Bates wheeled like a flash, and before I realized what happened he had dragged the executor into the room. "'You scoundrel! You ingrate!' howled the servant. The blood on his face and bare chest and the hatred in his eyes made him a hideous object, but in that lull of the storm while we waited, watching for an advantage, I heard off somewhere, above or below, that same sound of footsteps that I had remarked before. Larry and Stoddard heard it, Bates heard it, and his eyes fixed upon Pickering with a glare of malicious delight. "'There comes our old friend the ghost!' yelled Larry. "'I think you are quite right, sir,' said Bates. He threw down the revolver he held in his hand, and leaned upon the edge of the long table that lay on its side, his gaze still bent on Pickering, who stood with his overcoat buttoned close, his derby hat on the floor beside him, where it had fallen as Bates hauled him into the room. The sound of a measured step, of someone walking, of a careful foot on a stairway, was quite distinct. I even remarked the slight stumble that I had noticed before. We were all so intent on those steps in the wall that we were off guard. I heard Bates yell at me, and Larry and Stoddard rushed for Pickering. He had drawn a revolver from his overcoat pocket, and thrown it up to fire at me, when Stoddard sent the weapon flying through the air. "'Only a moment now, gentlemen,' said Bates, with an odd smile on his face. He was looking past me, toward the right end of the fireplace. There seemed to be in the air a feeling of something impending. Even Morgan and his men, half-crouching, ready for a rush at me, hesitated, and Pickering glanced nervously from one to the other of us. It was the calm before the storm. In a moment we should be at each other's throats for the final struggle, and yet we waited. In the wall I heard still the sound of steps. They were clear to all of us now. We stood there for what seemed an eternity. I suppose the time was really not more than thirty seconds. Inert, waiting, while I felt something must happen. The silence, the waiting, were intolerable. I grasped my pistol and bent low for a spring at Morgan, with the overturned table and wreckage of the chandelier between me and Pickering, and every man in the room was instantly on the alert. All but Bates. He remained rigid, that curious smile on his blood-smeared face, his eyes bent toward the end of the great fireplace back of me. That look on his face held, arrested, numbed me. I followed it. I forgot Morgan. A tacit truce held us all again. I stepped back till my eyes fastened on the broad-panelled chimney-breast at the right of the hearth, and it was there now that the sound of footsteps in the wall was heard again. Then it ceased utterly. The long panel opened slowly, creaking slightly upon its hinges. Then, down into the room, stepped Marion Devereux. She wore the dark gown in which I had seen her last, and a cloak was drawn over her shoulders. She laughed as her eyes swept the room. "'Ah, gentlemen,' she said, shaking her head as she viewed our disorder, "'what wretched housekeepers you are!' Steps were again heard in the wall, and she turned to the panel, held it open with one hand and put out the other, waiting for someone who followed her. Then, down into the room, stepped my grandfather, John Marshall Glenarm. His staff, his cloak, the silk hat above his shrewd face, and his sharp black eyes were unmistakable. 
he drew a silk handkerchief from the skirts of his frock-coat with a characteristic flourish that i remembered well and brushed a bit of dust from his cloak before looking at any of us then his eyes fell upon me good morning jack he said and his gaze swept the room god help us it was morgan i think who screamed these words as he bolted for the broken door but stoddard caught and held him thank god you're here sir boomed forth in bates sepulchral voice it seemed to me that i saw all that happened with a weird unnatural distinctness as one sees before a storm vivid outlines of far headlands that the usual light of day scarce discloses i was myself dazed and spellbound but i do not like to think even now of the effect of my grandfather's appearance on arthur pickering of the shock that seemed verily to break him in two so that he staggered then collapsed his head falling as though to strike his knees larry caught him by the collar and dragged him to a seat where he huddled his twitching hands at his throat gentlemen said my grandfather you seem to have been enjoying yourselves who is this person he pointed with his stick to the sheriff who was endeavouring to crawl out from under the mass of broken crystals that sir is the sheriff answered bates a very disorderly man i must say jack what have you been doing to cause the sheriff so much inconvenience didn't you know that that chandelier was likely to kill him that thing cost a thousand dollars gentlemen you are expensive visitors ah morgan and ferguson too well well i thought better of both of you good morning stoddard a little work for the church militant and this gentleman he indicated larry who was for once in his life without anything to say mr donovan a friend of the house explained bates pleased i'm sure said the old gentleman glad the house had a friend it seems to have had enemies enough he added dolefully and he eyed the wreck of the room ruefully the good humour in his face reassured me but still i stood in tongue-tied wonder staring at him and pickering john marshall glenarm's voice broke with a quiet mirth that i remembered as the preface usually of something unpleasant well arthur i'm glad to find you on guard defending the interests of my estate at the risk of your life too bates yes mr glenarm you ought to have called me earlier i really prize that chandelier immensely and this furniture wasn't so bad his tone changed abruptly he pointed to the sheriff's deputies one after the other with his stick there was i remembered always something insinuating disagreeable and final about my grandfather's staff clear out he commanded bates see these fellows through the wall mr sheriff if i were you i'd be very careful indeed what i said of this affair i'm a dead man come to life again and i know a great deal that i didn't know before i died nothing gentlemen fits a man for life like a temporary absence from this cheerful and pleasant world i recommend you to try it he walked about the room with the quick eager step that was peculiarly his own while stoddard larry and i stared at him bates was helping the day's sheriff to his feet morgan and the rest of the foe were crawling and staggering away muttering as though imploring the air of heaven against an evil spirit pickering sat silent not sure whether he saw a ghost or real flesh and blood and larry kept close to him cutting off his retreat i think we all experienced that bewildered feeling of children who are caught in mischief by a sudden parental visitation my grandfather went about peering at the books with a tranquil air that was disquieting he paused suddenly before the design for the memorial tablet which i had made early in my stay at glenarm house i had sketched the lettering with some care and pinned it against a shelf for my more leisurely study of its phrases 
the old gentleman pulled out his glasses and stood with his hands behind his back reading when he finished he walked to where i stood jack jack my boy his voice shook and his hands trembled as he laid them on my shoulders marian he turned seeking her but the girl had vanished just as well he said this room is hardly an edifying sight for a woman i heard for an instant a light hurried step in the wall pickering too heard that faint fugitive sound and our eyes met at the instant it ceased the thought of her tore my heart and i felt that pickering saw and knew and was glad they have all gone sir reported bates returning to the room now gentlemen began my grandfather seating himself i owe you an apology this little secret of mine was shared by only two persons one of these was bates he paused as an exclamation broke from all of us and he went on enjoying our amazement and the other was marion devereux i had often observed that at a man's death his property gets into the wrong hands or becomes a bone of contention among lawyers sometimes and the old gentleman laughed an executor proves incompetent or dishonest i was thoroughly fooled in you pickering the money you owe me is a large sum and you were so delighted to hear of my death that you didn't even make sure i was really out of the way you were perfectly willing to accept bates's word for it and i must say that bates carried it off splendidly pickering rose the blood surging again in his face and screamed at bates pointing a shaking finger at the man you impostor you perjurer the law will deal with your case to be sure resumed my grandfather calmly bates did make false affidavits about my death but possibly it was in a pickwickian sense sir said bates gravely and in a righteous cause declared my grandfather i assure you pickering that i have every intention of taking care of bates his weekly letters giving an account of the curious manifestations of your devotion to jack's security and peace were alone worth a goodly sum but bates the old gentleman was enjoying himself hugely he chuckled now and placed his hand on my shoulder bates it was too bad i got those misses of yours all in a bunch i was in a dahabieh on the nile and they don't have rural free delivery in egypt your cablegram called me home before i got the letters but thank god jack you're alive there was real feeling in these last words and i think we were all touched by them amen to that cried bates and now pickering before you go i want to show you something it's about this mysterious treasure that has given you and i hear the whole countryside so much concern i'm disappointed in you jack that you couldn't find the hiding place i designed that as part of your architectural education bates give me a chair the man gravely drew a chair out of the wreckage and placed it upon the hearth my grandfather stepped upon it seized one of the bronze sconces above the mantel and gave it a sharp turn at the same moment bates upon another chair grasped the companion bronze and wrenched it sharply instantly some mechanism creaked in the great oak chimney-breast and the long oak panels swung open disclosing a steel door with a combination knob gentlemen and my grandfather turned with a quaint touch of humour and a merry twinkle in his bright old eyes gentlemen behold the treasury it has proved a better hiding-place than i ever imagined it would there's not much here jack but enough to keep you going for a while we were all staring and the old gentleman was unfeignedly enjoying our mystification it was an hour on which he had evidently counted much it was the triumph of his resurrection and homecoming and he chuckled as he twirled the knob in the steel door then bates stepped forward and helped him to pull the door open disclosing a narrow steel chest upright and held in place by heavy bolts clamped in the stone of the chimney 
it was filled with packets of papers piled on shelves and tied neatly with tape jack said my grandfather shaking his head you wouldn't be an architect and you're not much of an engineer either or you'd have seen that that panelling was heavier than was necessary there's two hundred thousand dollars in first-rate securities i vouch for them bates and i put them there just before i went to vermont to die i've sounded those panels a dozen times i protested of course you have said my grandfather but solid steel behind wood is safe i tested it carefully before i left he laughed and clapped his knees and i laughed with him but you found the door of bewilderment and pickering's notes and that's something no i didn't even find that donovan deserves the credit but how did you ever come to build that tunnel if you don't mind telling me he laughed gleefully <laughs> that was originally a trench for natural gas pipes there was once a large pumping station on the site of this house with a big trunk main running off across country to supply the towns west of here the gas was exhausted and the pipes were taken up before i began to build i should never have thought of that tunnel in the world if the trench hadn't suggested it i merely deepened it and widened it a little and plastered it with cheap cement as far as the chapel and that little room where i put pickering's notes had once been the cellar of a house built for the superintendent of the gas plant i had never any idea that i should use that passage as a means of getting into my own house but marian met me at the station and told me that there was trouble here and came with me through the chapel into the cellar and through the hidden stairway that winds around the chimney from that room where we kept the candlesticks but who was the ghost i demanded if you were really alive and in egypt bates laughed now oh i was the ghost i went through there occasionally to stimulate your curiosity about the house and you nearly caught me once one more thing if we're not wearing you out i'd like to know whether sister teresa owes you any money my grandfather turned upon pickering with blazing eyes you scoundrel you infernal scoundrel sister teresa never borrowed a cent of me in her life and you have made war on that woman his rage choked him he told bates to close the door of the steel chest and then turned to me where are those notes of pickering's he demanded and i brought the packet gentlemen mr pickering has gone to ugly lengths in this affair how many murders have you gentlemen committed we were about to begin actual killing when you arrived replied larry grinning the sheriff got all of his men off the premises more or less alive sir said bates that is good it was all a great mistake a very great mistake and my grandfather turned to pickering pickering what a contemptible scoundrel you are i lent you that three hundred thousand dollars to buy securities to give you better standing in your railroad enterprises and the last time i saw you you got me to release the collateral so you could raise money to buy more shares then after i died he chuckled you thought you could find and destroy the notes and that would end the transaction and if you had been smart enough to find them you might have had them and welcome but as it is they go to jack if he shows any mercy on you in collecting them he's not the boy i think he is pickering rose seized his hat and turned toward the shattered library door he paused for a moment his face livid with rage you old fool he screamed at my grandfather you old lunatic i wish to god i had never seen you no wonder you came back to life you're a tricky old devil and too mean to die he turned toward me with some similar complaint ready at his tongue's end but stoddard caught him by the shoulders and thrust him out upon the terrace a moment later we saw him cross the meadow and hurry toward st agatha's